Morning. Still morning. Please turn with me in your Bibles to Colossians chapter 3. We'll be going through verse 18 and then into chapter 4, verse 1. So going through the book of Colossians over the past few months, we've seen an overarching theme, that being the supremacy of Christ. Christ is everything we need for salvation and spiritual growth. There's no other way, no other system, no other practice that can add to what he has done for us. We are called to trust in him alone, to abide in him, and to let his sufficiency and supremacy shape every aspect of our lives. The Apostle Paul's message to the Colossians is a timeless reminder to us today that our hope and our salvation are found in Christ alone and that we must remain steadfast in our faith and devotion to him. The letter to the Colossians was a response to a specific heresy that had been infiltrated in the church in which Paul emphasizes the preeminence of Christ as an image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, and the head of the church. He affirms that Christ is the source of all wisdom, knowledge, spiritual understanding, and that in him all the fullness of God dwells bodily. Throughout this letter, we've seen Paul urge the Colossians to put off the old self and put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge after the image of its creator. He's been warning them against taking, cap taking captive by human traditions and elemental spirits of the world and calls them to fix their minds on things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. So I've titled this message, Living Out Our Relationships in Light of Christ's Lordship. I did that because as I see this passage laid out, there are various practical instructions in three specific areas that, if lived out properly, demand that we submit to Jesus Christ as the ultimate authority in our lives. We must live in a way that reflects his love, his truth, and his righteousness. We must work to advance his kingdom in every aspect and facet that we live. I believe the only way to do that is to acknowledge his lordship. So in that, I wanted to say a little something regarding lordship as sort of a foundation to live this out as we go through this passage. So the supremacy of Christ being the crux of this book, as we've mentioned, and the lordship of Christ are closely related concepts that are both central to our faith. While they are distinct in some ways, they are interrelated and mutually reinforcing. The supremacy of Christ refers to the idea that Jesus is the preeminent and supreme ruler over all creation. This is based on his divine nature as the Son of God and his redemptive work on the cross, which has been reconciled to humanity to, reconciled humanity to God and brought about his new creation. The lordship of Christ, on the other hand, refers to the idea that Jesus is the rightful ruler and master of our individual lives. To acknowledge the lordship of Christ means to submit to his authority and to live in obedience to his commands. This involves surrendering our own will and desires to him and seeking to live our lives in a way that honors and glorifies him. 
So this relationship with this, between the supremacy of Christ and the lordship of Christ can be understood in this way. Because Christ is supreme over all creation, he is also the rightful lord and ruler over our individual lives. The recognition of his supremacy and authority leads naturally to the acknowledgement of his lordship and vice, vice versa. Steve Lawson had this to say about Christ's lordship. We must be willing to submit every area of our lives to the authority of Christ and to seek to obey his commands with all our hearts. This means that we must be willing to lay down our own desires and ambitions to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. So as we go through this passage, we should be doing that in light of his lordship. So if you haven't already turned to your Bibles, Colossians chapter 3, please do so now. I'm going to read from God's word, starting in verse 18. It says, Wives, submit to your husbands as fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they be discouraged. Bondservants, obey in everything. Those are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service, as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily, as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ, for the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. So in this passage, Paul addresses three specific relationships. We have wives and husbands, children and parents, and slaves and masters. So first set of relationships, we have wives and husbands. Verse 18 and 19, wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. And husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. So verse 18 gives instructions for the wives to submit to their husbands. It says, wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting to the Lord. So this concept of submission is often misunderstood and misinterpreted, but it is essential to understand what the Bible means when it speaks of submission. Submission does not mean inferiority or subjugation. Instead, it means to willingly place oneself under the authority and leadership of another. Now, this verse can be difficult for, one, for many of us to accept in our modern society, where the idea of submission is often viewed as archaic and oppressive. But as believers, we must always remember that our ultimate authority is the Word of God. And we must submit ourselves to it, even if it goes against cultural norms. First and foremost, submission in marriage means recognizing the God-ordained role of the husband as the leader, as the head of the household. And this is not to say that the husband is superior to the wife, but rather that he is given the responsibility to lead. Keep in mind, wives, your submission to your husbands is not based on their merit or worthiness, but rather on your obedience to God. In fact, the verse goes on to say that this submission is fitting in the Lord. This means that it is right and proper in the eyes of God and that it is an act of obedience and worship to him, recognizing 
that your submission is ultimately to Christ, who is worthy. We see this in Ephesians chapter 5, verses 22 through 24, where it says, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body and himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. So this passage is often seen as promoting hierarchical um, view of marriage, with the husband being the leader and the wife just following. However, this interpretation misses the mark in the the larger context of the passage. When Paul goes on to say in verse 25, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Here we see that the call for wives to submit is balanced by the call for husbands to sacrificially love. The husband is not given license to be a tyrant nor a dictator. Rather, he is called to love his wife as Christ loved the church, which means laying down his life for her. Now, I want to make this clear. Wives submitting to their husbands does not mean that they are inferior in any way. So let me direct you to 1 Corinthians 11.3. It says, but I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. So with any thoughts on inferiority, I think we need to take a look at the Trinity. Within the Trinity, there's a clear pattern of submission. The Son submits to the Father, and the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son. This submission is not a matter of inferiority or subordination in essence, but rather distinction in roles and relationships. The Son is eternally begotten of the Father, and the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son. And these relationships of submission and procession are essentially to the identity of each person in the Trinity. We see this pattern of submission within the Trinity having important implications in our lives as Christians. First, it reminds us that submission is not a matter of weakness or inferiority, but rather a mark of strength and honor. The Son willingly submits to the Father, even though He is equal to Him in essence and power. This submission is a reflection of the Son's love for the Father and His desire to glorify Him. And finally, we see the doctrine of the Trinity teaches us that submission is not a matter of coercion or domination, but rather a matter of love and respect. The Father, Son, and Spirit submit to one another freely and willingly out of love and devotion to each other. This is the kind of submission that we are called to as Christians, a submission that flows from a heart of love and a devotion to God and to one another. So the submission that Paul speaks of in our passage is not a blind obedience or a mindless following. Rather, it is a willing and voluntary submission based on mutual respect of love between a husband and a wife. The wife is called to submit to her husband's leadership, but this does not mean that she is inferior or less valuable. Both the husband and wife are created in the image of God and are equal in his sight. The idea of wives submitting to their husband is not a call for oppression or inequality. Rather, it's a call for husbands and wives to live out their roles in a loving and respectful way, with the husband leading in a sacrificial love and the wife submitting in willing obedience. It's a beautiful picture of the kind of selfless love that Christ demonstrated for his church, and it's a model for all Christians, all Christian marriages to follow. 
We see in the next instruction, this passage is for husbands. Verse 9 says, Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. So here we find clear instruction for husbands, commanding them to love their wives. But this is not just any kind of love. The word used for love in this passage is agape, which is a selfless, sacrificial, and unconditional love, a love that puts the needs of the other person above your own. It's a type of love that seeks the well-being of another person without expecting anything in return. This is the love that Christ demonstrated through his life, death, and resurrection. It is the highest form of love because it's not based on emotions or personal gain, but on the selfless desire to do good for others just as Christ has done. So Paul is calling husbands to be selfless in their loves and the love for their wives. They're to be willing to make sacrifices, to put in the time and effort necessary to make their marriage strong, to be patient and forgiving when their wife makes mistakes. And notice that Paul is not just commanding them to love their wives, but also not to be harsh with them. The word harsh means to be bitter or resentful. And Paul is telling us not to allow bitterness to take root. Instead, we are to be gentle and kind even when it's difficult. We must remember that our wives are not our enemies. They are our partners in life, and we are called to love and cherish them as Christ loves the church. This means being willing to put their needs first and to sacrifice for them. Philippians 2, 3, and 4 says, Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interests of others. So think of a shepherd who leads his flock. A good shepherd cares for his sheep, protects them, and leads them to green pastures. Similarly, husbands are called to be shepherds for their families, caring for their wives and children, protecting them, and leading them to God's truth. Ephesians 5, 25 through 28 says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. John MacArthur says this, about husbands. The husband who truly loves his wife will not find it burdensome to act sacrificially in her best interests. He will not be consumed with self-interest or with securing his own rights or privileges. One of the most important and foundational institutions established by God is marriage, providing a powerful example of Christ's love for the church. Wives are called to submit to their husbands joyfully And husbands are called to love their wives sacrificially, providing a foundation for love and respect and unity in the home. So obviously this is not always easy. There will be times when husbands and wives disagree or struggle to fulfill their roles in the marriage in these situations. It's important to seek God's guidance and to rely on his strength, not our own, to help us overcome these difficulties. So years back, there was a situation in my own marriage where biblically I knew that we needed to make a change in a particular area. On the onset in my flesh, I saw this as being an impossibility. I began to pray and seek the Lord for guidance, and then slowly 
I began to take my wife to the word of God, showing her the truth of scripture, and over time, she too came to the conclusion that this was a change that needed to be made. I did not demand immediate submission, but patiently took the time to show her what I believed God's will was based on scripture. Now I must say this wasn't overnight, actually it was about two years. But in this situation I was trusting God and I was trusting my wife. And sometimes that's what patience looks like. It may be a shorter amount of time, it may be longer, and maybe never on this side of eternity. In a Christ-centered marriage, both spouses are committed to honoring and serving one another. Submission and love are not one-sided, but rather both spouses are called to submit and love to one another. Husbands are called to lead with love and humility, while wives are called to support and respect their husband's leadership. So think of a triangle with Christ at the top, and you have the husband and the wife at the bottom. As they go closer to Christ, they come closer together creating a strong and stable relationship. They're able to love and serve one another. But again, that focus can't be on themselves. It has to be on Christ. This brings us to our next set of relationships, the children and parents. Verse 320 and 21 says, Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. And fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. So this is clear direction from the Lord to children, and it's one that's often disregarded or even outright ignored in our culture today. But, followers, but as followers of Christ, we must take this command seriously and strive to obey it fully. We need to understand the context of this verse. See, Paul is writing to the Colossians, a community of believers who are struggling with false teaching, and influences that were threatening to pull them away from the truth of the gospel. So here Paul is giving a practical instruction for how they should live as new creations in Christ. So when Paul says, children, obey your parents in everything, he's speaking not just to young children, but to all young people who are under the authority of their parents. This commandment is not based on the age of a child, but on their position in the family. As long as a child's living in the parent's household and under their care, they are called to obey them. This commandment is not just a suggestion or a good idea. It's a direct command from the Lord. And if you need to ask why should children obey their parents, we're given the answer immediately. It says right here, because it pleases the Lord. Children who obey their parents are obeying God, and they will be rewarded for their obedience. This is because obedience is an expression of faith and trust, not necessarily in their fallible parents, but faith and trust in God. We see this principle in action in the, lives of Je- in the life of Jesus. In Luke 2.51, we read that Jesus was obedient to his parents and continued to grow in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. His obedience to his earthly parents was an expression of his obedience to his heavenly Father. It goes on to say in verse 21, Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. So again, it's important to understand the context that Paul wrote these words. In the Greco-Roman culture of the day, fathers had absolute authority over their families, including the power of life and death over their children. 
In contrast, the Christian faith offered a radically different vision of family life. The gospel called for fathers to love their children sacrificially, just as Christ loved the church, and this was new. In light of this, Paul exhorts fathers not to provoke their children. The Greek word here for provoke means to stir up or irritate. Fathers are warned against treating their children in such a way that they become exasperated or discouraged. Because when fathers provoke their children, it can have lasting negative effects on their emotional and spiritual well-being. Children who are constantly criticized or belittled by their fathers may grow up with a sense of worthlessness and low self-esteem. They may struggle to form healthy relationships both with God and others. And furthermore, provoking children can have a detrimental impact on their faith. When fathers use their authority to bully or manipulate their children, they risk alienating them from the gospel. So instead of seeing love and grace, the love and grace of the Father, I mean of, of God in their fathers, they may only see hypocrisy and cruelty. So you know, sometimes if something spills or breaks, breaks, we don't just need to freak out all the time. There are times when they need discipline, but maybe there's times when we need to laugh it off because just sometimes things break. A few years back, our younger boys had these sticks. They were about gay long, and they were made to build things in construction, and they had these really hard balls that you would, had holes in them, and you would stick them in these holes, and you would build from them. So as kids do with their toys, they rarely use them as intended. And in this particular item, they'd often just run around with one stick and that ball just on the end, and they'd wave them around. It was never outside. It was always in the house. And one of these times, inevitably, one of our boys was flailing that thing around, and that hard ball came flying off. And as projectiles do in a confined space, it found something to stop it. That was our TV. Screen shattered. <laughs> Complete loss. <laughs> so, but don't get me wrong, I'm not as obsessed with this TV. I mean, I liked it. It was a nice TV. The thing about it is, our living room, we don't have a fireplace, so it's kind of the centerpiece of the living room. So, I mean, it really tied it together, and now it was gone. So I was at work when this happened, and so from what I understand, he was terrified of me finding out. When I did find out, though, I think I shocked the family, really, including my son, at how calm I was. So I don't say this in uh, a boasting about how well I handled this situation. It's to my shame. Actually, what I want to point out is the expectation was me to freak out. So when I showed grace, that's what surprised him. So it just made me realize, for instance, maybe I don't show enough grace. If that's what I'm known for, the freak out, and not known for grace, I would rather err on the side of grace and have that be expected than, oh, dad's going to kill me. So what does it mean for fathers to love their children in a way that does not provoke them? First and foremost, it means 
treating them with respect and dignity as image bearers of God. Fathers must refrain from using their power to manipulate or control their children. Instead, we should seek to understand and affirm their child's unique personalities, gifts, and talents as given by God. Furthermore, fathers must discipline their children with love and grace rather than with anger and frustration. This means setting clear boundaries and consequences, but also offering forgiveness and restoration when their child falls short. In contrast, a father who encourages his children builds them up and helps them thrive. This can be done through positive reinforcement, praise, and spending quality time with them. A father who shows love and affection to his children creates an environment where they feel safe, valued, and supported. And ultimately, fathers must model the sacrificial love of Christ to the children. We must show them what it means to lay down our lives for their sake, just as Jesus did for us. And by doing so, we not only avoid provoking our children, but more importantly, point them to the love and grace of our Heavenly Father. Next, we have our third set of relationships, slaves and masters. Verse 22 to chapter 4, verse 1, instructs us in our relationships with our earthly masters, and it says this, Bond servants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, but not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ, for the wrongdoer will, will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. So in the ESV, which I'm using, verse 22 mentions bondservants, but it's better translated as slaves. And first of all, it should be noted that the, that the Bible does not condone the institution of slavery. However, slavery was a reality in the ancient world, and Paul and other New Testament writers had to address it. But the principles that are laid out in this passage apply to all of us who find ourselves in a position of servitude. Here we see that slaves are to be obedient to their masters, and this obedience is to be done with a sincerity of heart and reverence to the Lord. So the same applies to us as servants of the Lord Jesus Christ. We are to be obedient to him in everything, not just when others are watching or when it's convenient for us. Our obedience is to be sincere and heartfelt, and it's to be motivated by a deep reverence for our master. So furthermore, Paul goes on to say in verse 23 and 24, whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. Here we see that slaves are not to simply go through the motions of their work, but are to work at it with all their heart as if they are working for the Lord himself. So again, this applies to us as well. As servants of the Lord Jesus Christ, we're not to simply go through the motions of our service to him, but are to work with all our heart as if we were working for the Lord himself. So it's the same thing. We are to do with the knowledge that we will receive an inheritance from him as a reward. And ultimately, it's the Lord Jesus Christ whom we are serving. So as we read this verse just on its face, it may seem irrelevant to our modern society. After all, we no longer have slaves and masters in the same way However, we can still learn important principles to apply to our lives. 
We see here that we are to obey our earthly authorities. This applies not only to slaves and masters, but could apply to employees and employers, citizens of government and officials, and children and parents. We are called to submit to those in authority over us, as long as their commands do not violate God's commands. But notice that the passage goes beyond mere obedience. We are not simply to obey when authorities are watching or when it benefits us. Rather, we are to obey with sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord. In other words, our obedience should be motivated by our love for Christ and our desire to honor Him. So as Christians, we are called to serve the Lord Jesus Christ with our hearts, minds, and strength. We are to serve Him with diligence, perseverance, and faithfulness, knowing that every act of service we render to Him is not in vain. Our motivation for serving the Lord should not be driven by a desire for earthly gain or recognition, but by the love that we have for our Savior. Our hearts should be fully devoted to Him, and our desire to please Him should be our driving force in all that we do. Let us not grow weary in doing good, church, for the time we will reap a harvest in time. Even as we work towards this inheritance, we are still serving the Lord. Our obedience and hard work are not just a means to an end, but an expression of our love for him. John Calvin said this, We are not our own. Let not our reason nor our will therefore sway our plans and deeds. We are not our own. Let us therefore not set it as our goal to seek what is expedient for us. We are not our own. In so far as we can, let us therefore forget ourselves and all that is ours. Conversely, we are God's. Let us therefore live for him and die for him. We are God's. Let this wisdom, let his wisdom and will therefore rule our actions. We are God's. Let all the parts of our life accordingly strive towards him as our only lawful goal. Now in verse, verse 25 brings a warning to all those who prefer profess to follow Christ, where it says, for the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there's no partiality. We're reminded that there's no partiality with God. This means that God does not show favoritism to anyone, regardless of their position or status in life. This is an important reminder for us as we navigate our relationships with others. We must treat everybody with love and respect, whether they are rich or poor or powerful or powerless. Furthermore, Paul reminds us that the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong that he has done. It should be a sobering reminder that we all will be held accountable for our actions, both good and bad. And as Christians, we must strive to live a life that's pleasing to God and avoid any behavior that would bring dishonor to him. In James 2, 1 through 4, we see that showing partiality is a sin when James writes, My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, who is to treat everybody with respect and love regardless of their status in life. And further down in James 2, in verse 8 and 9, we read, If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scriptures, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and convicted by the law as transgressors. 
reinforcing the principle of treating others with justice and fairness and warning against showing partiality or favoritism. There are consequences for our actions, both good and bad. The Apostle Paul is telling us that God is not partial in his judgment. He does not play favorites. He does not show mercy to those who persist in wrongdoing. It's a crucial message for us to hear, especially in a world that so often encourages us to do whatever we want without considering the consequences. We live in a society that values instant gratification and self-fulfillment, often at the expense of others. But as believers in Christ, we are called to a higher standard. We are called to live lives that are pleasing to God and that reflect the character of Christ. This means that we must take responsibility for our actions and be willing to face the consequences of our choices. The consequences of sin are not temporal, but eternal. The Bible tells us in Romans 6.23 that the wages of sin is death. But the good news is that through faith in Jesus Christ, we've received forgiveness for our sins and the the gift of eternal life. Let's be mindful of of this warning and live lives in such a way that we honor God and reflect his love and grace to the world around us. And let us remember that God is just and impartial in his judgment and that we will all one day give an account for our actions. So what does this mean for us today? How do we apply these principles in our relationships with others? I think first, We must recognize that the Lordship of Christ extends to every aspect of our lives, including our relationships. Whether we are employees, employers, citizens, or family members, we are called to submit to those in authority over us and to honor them as if we were honoring Christ himself. Second, we must remember that our obedience and hard work are not just a means to an end, but an expression of our love for Christ. We should strive to do all things with excellence and integrity, not just to please others or earn earthly rewards, but to honor the Lord who has called us to this work. And finally, we must keep our ultimate goal in mind. As we work towards our inheritance from the Lord, we must remember that we are serving him in all that we do. Theologian John Stott said this, said the Christian work is not only a calling from God, it's also a service to God. It's not only a means of earning a living, it is also a means of glorifying God. So as we reflect on this passage, let us remember that our relationships with others are not just about earthly authority and obedience, but about our love for Christ and our desire to honor him in all that we do. In Matthew 22, 37 through 39, Jesus tells us that the greatest commandment is to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, and mind, and the second is to love our neighbors as ourselves. Our relationships with others should be rooted in love just as our relationship with God is. We should be marked by love, humility, and a willingness to serve. As Christians, we are called to be light in darkness, to love our neighbors as ourselves, and to treat everybody with respect and dignity. Charles Spurgeon writes this, If we are to love our neighbors as ourselves, we must regard their happiness as important as our own. It is not enough to wish them well. We must actively seek their good. So moving on in our passage to chapter 4, verse 1, we're told that masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you 
also have a master in heaven. This is an echo of Ephesians 6, 9, when Paul says, Masters, do the same to them, and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and that there is no partiality with him. So this verse highlights the fact that our ultimate accountability is with God. Even if we're able to exercise power and authority over others in this life, we will one day stand before our heavenly master and give an account of how we treated others under our authority. This should give us pause as we, and cause us to reflect on how we're using our power and authority that we've been given. So those who hold positions of power and authority must exercise that power with justice and fairness, knowing that they will ultimately answer to God for how they treated others. In Matthew seven twelve, Jesus says, So whatever, whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. For this is the law and the prophets. So this verse, commonly known as the golden rule, is a fundamental principle of our relationship with, as Christians. We should treat others with the same love, respect, and kindness that we would want for ourselves. In Matthew 25, 40, Jesus says, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. When we serve others, we are serving Christ. So our relationship should, not be, characterized, should be characterized by love. We should let <clears throat> the peace of Christ rule in our hearts, be thankful, and let the word of Christ dwell in us richly. richly. We also want to bear with one another and forgive one another, just as Christ forgave us. Not only should our relationships be characterized by love, but should also be characterized by humility. 1 Peter 5, 5 states, All of you, clothe yourself in humility towards one another because God opposes the proud but shows favor to the humble. We need to cultivate this attitude of humility in our relationships with others. By seeking to serve others, we can live out our faith in a way that honors God and benefits those around us. Moreover, our relationships should be characterized by self-control. In Galatians 5, and 23, Paul lists the fruits of the Spirit, which include love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. As Christians, we should exercise self-control in our relationships, resisting the temptation to act in sinful ways and instead responding with love and grace. 1 John 4, 20 and 21, we read, If anyone says, I love God, and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother, whom he has seen, cannot love God, whom he has not seen. And his commandment we have from him, whomever loves God must also love his brother. Emphasizing the connection between our love for God and our love for others. If we claim to love God, but do not love our brothers and sisters, we are lying to ourselves and to others. Jonathan Edwards says, Godliness consists in the right disposition of the heart towards God and towards man. It is a disposition of reverence towards God and a benevolence towards man. So hopefully this passage reminds us that our, our faith must not be relegated to private or personal, or personal matter, but be lived out in a relationship with others. And that our faith must impact how we relate to others. The Christian life was never meant to be lived alone. Also remember, or also reminding us that our ultimate accountability is to God who calls us to live with integrity 
and to love and love in all of our relationships. So throughout this passage, we see that our relationships with others are to be shaped by our submission to the Lordship of Christ, and we are called to love sacrificially, to serve diligently, and to treat others justly, all as expressions of our devotion to him. Brothers and sisters, our treatment of others is ultimately a reflection of our relationship with Christ. And our relationship should be characterized by love, humility, and self-control. As we strive to live out these principles in our relationships, let us remember the words of Jesus in John 13, 35. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. May we be known by our love for one another, and may our relationships be a testimony to the power and the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you in humble submission to your words, seeking to understand and apply the truths found in this passage. We acknowledge that you are the author and perfecter of all things, that your wisdom and your grace are beyond comprehension. As we reflect on these verses, let us be reminded of the importance of living out our roles and responsibilities in a manner that is pleasing to you. Help us to submit to one another in love as we seek to honor you in all that we do. May our homes be filled with peace and joy. May our interactions with others reflect the love and grace that we have received through Christ. I pray for those in positions of authority, that they be given wisdom and integrity. I ask that you guide and direct them so that they may lead in a manner that honors and benefits those under their care. Lord, I pray for those that are oppressed and mistreated, that you would bring them justice and restoration in their lives, and I ask that you would help us be agents of your grace and love, reaching out to those in need and sharing the hope that we have in Christ. I pray these things in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.